Hello, everybody. Welcome to Devil Details episode two. This episode, we are getting into it. We're talking about the first two episodes of Blackbird. My name is Sarah. And I'm Kristen. We're going to talk all about episode one and two and dive through and give our thoughts and feelings and go basically scene by scene for each episode and give you all the good stuff. Yep. We're going to break it down for you. We're going to give all of our uh, observations on everything and just get really into it. So first of all, Kristen, how did you feel going into watching the show for the first time? Like what was going on in your mind? Like right before you hit play, what was happening? Uh, Butterflies. It was weird. I was very, I don't know if it was anxious, nervous, excited, there's that word again. Um, <laughs> Our favorite But I was word. very – like I was kept watching the clock because I knew it was going to be live at 8 p.m. So I was watching the clock all night waiting for it. And then as soon as I got the <laughs> alert on my phone that it was live, I kind of had to take a deep breath. and <laughs> It's real. It's here. Calm myself. And I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> it's happening. How about you? Uh, yeah, I was feeling a lot of the same stuff. I So I was at work all day and the episode dropped the minute that I got off work and I, and I knew it was happening because Apple TV releases their episodes at weird times. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm in Alaska, so it drops at 5 p.m. my time right when I get off work. So I could not focus at work all day because <laughs> I knew it was coming and I knew it was going to be immediately when I get off work, the show was going to be available and people were going to be watching it. Um, and so I, I got the alert on my phone, just like you said, Mm -hmm. Apple TV said, you know, new show available and that, you know, made it a real moment. And I Mm -hmm. almost, I I was driving home and I had that in my head and I had seen that. I almost got, I I got emotional, honestly, which Mm -hmm. is so embarrassing to say, but I really did get get emotional because I've been waiting for this show. You know, we've been, we've been waiting for it for, uh, officially we've been waiting for it for about a year, a year and a half now, but as a huge Taryn Edgerton fan. We've been waiting for something like this for a lot longer than <laughs> a, long a year, time, yeah. you know? Three been, years it's since been, his last... Yeah, three years since Rocket Man, which was his last really big project. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's been a long time. And mm-hmm. finally, uh, knowing that we were going to gonna see him on screen and, and see him do his thing that we knew he was so proud of and, and wanting to show the world. So that, that got a little emotional for yeah. me. I didn't cry or anything, but I was no. really like... <laughs> clutching my chest like oh this is this is happening and yeah and so I got home I uh I got everyone in my household you know ready I was like once we hit play there's no talking no moving no no blocking the screen no pausing this is a big moment and we need Mm -hmm. to focus and get ready for it um and so we kind of all got settled and hit play and uh yeah it was uh yeah it was kind of like a I don't know what, like not a relief, but like a type moment when you hit play and you saw the intro start. Right. Like, Like, oh, this is, it's finally happening. It's It's not just like. It's it's real. It's not, you know, something that you keep hearing about and never comes to fruition. Right. It was like, this is real now. It's real. It's happening. It's on the screen. Yeah. It's real. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to start with episode one and focus on episode Mm -hmm. one first, and then we'll take a little break which we have a little surprise for you guys during the break, which is it's probably not going to be a surprise. I'll put it in the show description what it is. <laughs> um, so in between our two episode talks, we're going to have a little interview with a very special guest that we Yay. have talked to named Hillel Levin, who is the author 
um, the co-author of In With The Devil, who wrote the book with Jimmy Keene. We had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. He's amazing to listen to. Yeah, he has a lot of cool things to say about a lot of stuff. So we're going to, part of that interview is going to be in this episode, and then we'll release another episode with the full interview, because he had a lot of cool stuff to talk about that we couldn't just shove into one episode. (laughs) We had to give it its own episode. So, And we want to make sure you hear it all, because it was really fascinating to listen to him speak. He's uh, he's worked on a lot of cool stuff besides this story, too, that we um, talked to him about. Um, So we're we're really happy to bring that to you and and have you guys listen to that. So yeah, we're going to just start off with episode one right now. So uh, Kristen, what is episode one? So episode one is called Pilot, and it is Jimmy Keene is living in the fast lane until he gets a 10-year prison sentence. Behind bars, he's approached about a high-stakes deal for freedom. Mm -hmm. Didn't really give a whole lot, but... (laughs) Right, but we'll, we'll get into it. Yes. So the first thing that we see when we press play is this intro sequence which is so cool i mm-hmm. i was into it it shows you can tell that a lot of these scenes that are kind of flashing are going to be in the show at some point like it, it's showing mm-hmm. like larry hall's in there and it's showing you see a little flash of brian miller um mm-hmm. and and stuff so you see people who are in the show so we're gonna we're gonna see probably those scenes later on in the show i liked how it looked like old news footage or um home video type footage yeah. it gave that feel of a home video type it was also a very 90s feel for me yes that's i was just gonna say that <laughs> which is good this all takes place yes. kind of in the mid uh the mid 90s yeah um and that definitely came across and then the music uh was cool too uh, it's uh the whole show is scored by uh mogwai they created the score for the whole show including the title sequence and it really it's really good yeah it really gives a cool sort of vibe to the whole thing yeah it kind of adds to the intensity yeah. of what the show is going to be like it gives you that feel just jumping right into it for sure it really ties over the moments mm-hmm. so yeah so we have the intro and then it opens with Taryn Edgerton as Jimmy Keene giving a little voiceover speech so right off the bat we have to talk about this because yes I was gonna say I have something to say about this when I so the first second like you know brief moment i didn't realize that was taryn speaking at right. first yeah because he does not the sound accent like is so good i had to really listen for a second and it took four or five words of him speaking before i realized that it was him yeah so kudos to him and his dialogue coach yes <laughs> carter was that carter him? bellamy yeah yeah who's uh, um, who was taryn edgerton's dialogue coach because taryn edgerton is British. He has a he has a mm-hmm. British accent regularly, and so this is mm-hmm. him doing his American accent, which he has uh, not done a lot in the past for other projects. <laughs> one one in particular, he has done an American accent, but this in this he sounds really good. I mean, I yeah. think if people didn't know that he was British, it would it would be a hundred percent believable. Yeah, because like you couldn't even hear a faint British accent. Because sometimes I feel like when British actors do an American accent, some of their vowels. You can t- you can tell that they're not Native American. Yeah, they kind of uh, English speakers drop into but it. His was really good. Like it took me a minute. To be like, oh wow, <laughs> that's his voice. Yeah, and this, yeah. So this is Jimmy Keen talking, and he he mentions like the butterfly effect, where you know if a butterfly flaps its wings, then it'll cause what did he say? A hurricane in hurricane. Miami. Yeah, I, I think the the way that he said it kind of 
immediately gives you an insight into his character because it's kind of mm-hmm. like sassy almost. It's really mm-hmm. just, you know, if, if you don't know, look it up, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, kind of just like, duh, whatever. Yeah. It basically says that everything is connected, even if you don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And then it shows Jessica Roach played by Lainey Stibing, and she's on her on her bike and she's wearing like red Converse shoes. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy's talking about how he doesn't know this girl, but they're connected. And so connected, yeah. that kind of tells us like the story is going to be mm-hmm. about Jimmy and how he's connected to the story of Jessica Roach mm-hmm. through Larry Hall. Um, so then we get our first visual of Taryn as Jimmy Keen. And the mm-hmm. next scene, we uh, see him in his house, sort of like in this man cave. Um, he's, yeah, it's very dark. <laughs> yeah, it was dark and he there was like a an arcade game thing yeah. in there and a big tv and his friends on a, a couch bar. yeah he was like behind this bar they were watching uh jimmy's i'm assuming high school mm-hmm. football yeah uh, highlight reel. and it, it sort of gives us exposition on who jimmy is and who he was he was you know a star football player mm-hmm. and they talk about them and how he's can kiki's you know Top. golden son or yeah. whatever they said <laughs> i got the impression that he in that moment was kind of thinking like this, I could have done something more with my life, mm-hmm. but this is what I'm doing now. Then like he had like that moment. Shoving, shoving stuff into a bag. Yeah. To Giant uh, blocks of drugs. Kilos of cocaine in a bag. Um, and yeah. And so that brings us to your next scene where he's at a warehouse. Well, they, uh, they are talking and then he le- goes to leave. Yeah. So he, he shows so up at, at the yeah and he meets up with this guy who's named Raj who's like mm-hmm. a drug supplier and yeah. apparently there was either a miscommunication or something happened where Jimmy was shorted he was shorted a kilo yeah. that he was supposed to get from this dealer and the and the dealer said it's not his fault it's, yeah it's not his yeah. fault why do you think it's my fault and he says that his friend Danny told him it was his fault Right. And he has no reason not to believe him because he grew up with the guy. He's like family. Right. But then cut to Danny bloodied and beat up. <laughs> Jimmy immediately knows, oh, great. Well, yeah. something's happened here and this Something is happened. what is going on. So it turns out that Danny was the one who took the drugs. Yeah. And when they first shot the gun, when uh, that guy first shot towards Danny, directly, I gasped. Yeah, directly I was like, his <gasps> chest. <laughs> I was like, oh my god. <laughs> uh, I, I particularly wanted to talk about this scene just because it, it's also a story in the book. This actually happened mm-hmm. with Jimmy's friend. In the book, it was a Mexican drug person, drug though. Cartel, like, he yeah. had to cross the border to Mexico yeah. to deal with this and uh, pick up his friend Danny, who had basically been kidnapped by these people. Right. <laughs> um, so this is, yeah, this is all based on a real story, um, which a, a lot of the show is. Loosely based on some parts. Yes. This scene with the the yelling because they get intense as the scene goes on. You could feel the anxiety and the desperation. Right. I mean, Jimmy's screaming, anxious, and yeah, (laughs) yeah, like just the screaming and the throwing of the drugs on the table Mm -hmm. and the gun and not knowing what was going to happen and the music. I don't even know if there was music playing, but it just felt very anxious and chaotic and right it made me feel like i was sitting in the room with them yeah it was good yeah it was it was intense 
Um, so after after they take care of, after Jimmy takes care of Danny and and gets all that sorted, <laughs> basically is like paying the supplier back for the kilos right. that he accused them of taking. And Danny's life is not worth more than three kilos. It's not worth more than three arcane. kilos. <laughs> yeah, but then we go to um, we we cut to he's in the shower. Yeah, it, and it, it kind of shows Jimmy's house and like the spoils of Mm -hmm. his you know drug dealer life you know he has a really fancy house a huge walk-in closet he's wearing a gold chain while he's in the shower Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know it's very over the top yeah it's very luxurious his life yeah you know the spoils of his drug money (laughs) his very nice clothes and yes and then so we cut to him at like a bar or at a restaurant and he is Mm -hmm. talking to this He's like zoned out at first. Right. Like he's he can... just staring out the window. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so she, the server named Rochelle kind of has to grab his attention. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote down, she's played by Cecilia Leal, um, Rochelle, and they sort of talk and then he Flirt. is giving her the eyes mm-hmm. like I need her. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> like... a flirty, charming look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very flirty, very much like almost predatory <laughs> in a way yeah, it was yeah, it was yeah very dominant right and i mean he brought her home and they're having yep. sex on his couch right after that yep. full uh you see the full taryn peach there yep a, a lot to the imagination <laughs> right <laughs> but it shows like the lifestyle that he was living like right no cares no real thought into anything just yeah. kind of did what he wanted to do and that's he's got it. money and looks and charm and mm-hmm. he uses it to just do whatever he wants yep and then it cuts to him the next morning yep getting uh making a smoothie i guess right like a breakfast it was a weird color shake. <laughs> yeah because it looked green in one shot and then it was yellow so and he was drinking it straight out of the blender yeah straight out of the giant blender yeah it looked like he was going to go work out maybe because he yeah. had shoes on, which was weird. Yeah, no no clothes on, but he was wearing shoes and shorts. Yeah. And But like running shoes. They were, they yeah. were not just like. <laughs> so I don't know if he was drinking his protein shake before he went to work, work out or what. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, during this whole time, the FBI <laughs> and yes. DEA agents, you can kind of see them in the windows in the background. And Jimmy doesn't really clock it. I think he feels like something weird is about to happen. Well, here's something rustling or something. Yeah, they're like surrounding his door, his all of his windows in the kitchen. And meanwhile, the girl is still, Rochelle is still sleeping on the couch. Yep. (laughs) I'm assuming she was sleeping. (laughs) Or pretending to sleep so that she she didn't have (laughs) to deal with whatever was going on. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, DEA agents come in and tackle him and shake. Shake goes everywhere. And the, the... I don't know if it was – I'm sure it was choreographed for this. But when they push him onto the counter by his neck and the shake flings up in the air and, like, beautifully splatters, <laughs> I'm sure that was planned the way that happened. Or um, just artfully splatters. It's yes. everywhere. Like, on it's... him, but on the floor and on the counter. And he, like, slides across the counter. Right. And this whole time he's smirking and smiling mm-hmm. and laughing. He's like, this is hilarious. Yeah, like I've been here before. I'll be fine. Right, like nothing's gonna happen. You guys have yeah. nothing on me. Um, turns out they do have stuff on him. They have like, quite a <laughs> bit of things on him. They do. Um, and so this scene is when we first see Lauren McCauley, um, Seppi Mawafi. 
-hmm. And she calls him Jimbo, which is fun. (laughs) He does not like that. He does not like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then it shows like his stash of just drugs and cash and guns. Bullets. Yeah. Scales. And he's still very cocky in that moment. Yeah, he never he never like drops he's sitting it. at the table. Yeah. And he's yeah, he's laughing the whole time. And mm-hmm. he's like, I have good lawyers. He's very cocky about the whole thing. Yeah. Like he's like, eh, I'll be fine. Right. And then but then, you know, that kind of goes away immediately because the next mm-hmm. scene is Jimmy in jail waiting to talk to his dad. Which he's happy to see his dad, but he's definitely not happy yeah. to be there. No. And I during that scene uh, you could kind of see the desperation in his eyes and face to want to please his dad. Like, what am I? Tr- do, what do I need to do to make you happy? And Big Jim says something like, "I wish I would. You know, I had better dreams for you. I wanted you to have a wife, mm-hmm. a kid, a dog." And you can kind of see on Jimmy's face, like, "I, I want to do what pleases him. Mm-hmm. So I want to make him happy. Yeah. So I have to get out to and that's, make him. That's happy Big Jim, who's played by." Ray Liotta and and yeah he was he told Jimmy that he wanted all these great things for his life but then Jimmy's like I couldn't have that life because I needed to help you and so that clues us into like oh like he's funding his dad's whole lifestyle Mm -hmm. too and um and in the book they talk about that a lot how big Jim is spending a lot of Jimmy's money and Mm -hmm. Jimmy's happy to do it he's happy to give his dad all the money that he could possibly want or need but he also says like he's he was spending the money faster than I can make mm-hmm. it. So yeah, that is kind of hinted at there where he says, I I couldn't have helped you if I lived that life. Mm-hmm. But he wants to do what he can. Like he he want like that he's desperate to please mm-hmm. him. Yeah. So Big Jim tells Jimmy about Beaumont, who's a prosecutor. Oh, he also says that Beaumont is trying to prove that he's not part of the machine. And then Big Jim mm-hmm. says that I was part of the machine. And so that I think is referring to how he was a cop, but he was also like, he wasn't a clean cop, basically. Right. He was a little shady. Yeah. So he's, he worked with, he worked both sides and a lot of stuff like that. So he was part of the machine. And yeah, so he tells Jimmy to plea out and that he should only get five years in jail Mm -hmm. for, you know, out and for, for good behavior or whatever. Tells him to to take the the plea deal that Beaumont is offering. Um, And so, yeah, it goes to Jimmy being in court. And getting mm-hmm. pleading guilty, um, we see Beaumont, who's played by Robert Wisdom, and he takes the plea deal. And then the judge flips the switch. Yeah, he drops it, and he says, "You are sentenced to 120 months, 10 years." And it took me a moment to figure out that that was 10 years. <laughs> like, oh, you're making me show you how math. bad my math is. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? 120 months? That's if you, yeah, okay, 12 yeah. months in a year. <laughs> yeah, add the zero. <laughs> But then Jimmy and says it for me, so then I knew. Ten years, and he's he is yeah. mad. He's big mad. Big mad, um, because he's claiming that Beaumont lied to him. You know, Beaumont mm-hmm. worked with him on this plea deal, and it was supposed to be five years, and it ended up being ten. So I think that really establishes this lack of trust between Beaumont mm-hmm. and Jimmy that is going to come into play yeah. later, more in episode two, I think, than um, this episode, mm-hmm. but. It kind of establishes Beaumont and Jimmy's relationship a little bit. Yeah, because he kind of bait and switched him. Yeah. Bait and switch. Then it's seven months later. So Jimmy's been in prison for seven months now. And it seems a fairly like low security type prison because he had kind of like freedom to kind of walk around inside. Mm -hmm. 
he wasn't like locked behind his door. Right. So, and yeah, that, that tracks, it's like a a medium security, I think, Mm -hmm. where where he was placed because he's just in there for for drugs drugs. (laughs) and guns, guns. I guess. (laughs) I think that was the big one that got him was the guns. Yeah, that got him the full 10 years. And so they bring him into this dentist office in the prison and Mm -hmm. Lauren McCauley and Beaumont are both in there waiting to talk to him. And we learn Lauren McCauley introduces herself and kind of is laying on the charm a little bit with Jimmy to try and Mm -hmm. sort of get get in with him, I think, to convince him to do this deal. Get on his side. And I liked that the trailer because the trailer shows a part of this Mm -hmm. scene, but I like that it didn't show the full dialogue in the trailer yeah it switched it up like a it little bit it was very and it, it they'd used different language in the stronger language than they did in the trailer <laughs> they i think they filmed a specific version for the uh, trailer but i like that they didn't show the full scope of that scene right that scene was really was really good it is and uh yeah so we uh we learn more about about jimmy's prison life too in that scene mm-hmm. where he um he rents out dirty magazines to the other inmates mm-hmm. to raise some cash so that he can get better food <laughs> fresh vegetables and what was the other a lean cut meat mm-hmm. yeah prison food sucks yeah and the way that macaulay talks to jimmy is very you know she she calls him charming and and uh, mm-hmm. she 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 understands him but she's also mm-hmm. not taken by his charms she's really serious no. about this deal and about her job and and she kind of she knows how to get into Jimmy's head too, and you can kind of see that yeah. in this scene and and more so throughout the the show. Yeah, she doesn't take any punches, but she she knows how to work work it so that he agrees with her. Yeah, she's very she's very smart. She's worked this mm-hmm. out and done yeah. definitely done her research. She knows what she's doing. Yes, <laughs> and yeah, so she drops this deal on him, and Jimmy is like, no, like I'm yeah. not going to do that. And uh, and then she says, well, what if what if you got your freedom? And mm-hmm. that intrigues him for sure. Yes. Cheek flinch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, that makes him think twice about it for sure. But he still is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And yeah. so they leave Larry Hall's file with him. Like, look this over and, you know, reconsider the fact that you're going to spend right. 10 years in here if you don't do this, basically. Yeah. And yeah, so that's when it cuts to our first sighting of Detective Brian Miller. Um, mm-hmm. Greg Kinnear. Yeah, but he's at a soccer football flag football game. Yes, soccer game. Um, he's at his daughter's flag football game, mm-hmm. and like in the middle of the game, a police officer comes up and calls him over, and we we find out that it's because they found a body that of a case that they were working on. Yes, they found the body the body of Jessica Roach in yes. a cornfield, and she was strangled, and so that mm-hmm. um, and it's revealed that it's the same girl from the the very first scene of the episode, mm-hmm. the girl with the red Converse shoes. Oh, I saw that the um, the director of photography, yeah, Natalie Kingston, she said that this, uh, this scene in the cornfield where they see Jessica's body was like the hottest day that they ever filmed at. <laughs> you could tell. Yeah. It looked hot. Very hot. <laughs> I would assume most of their filming was very hot. Yeah. It was a very hot summer last year. Yeah, and this is all filmed and in I the south. And I was not in New Orleans, but yeah, I think there was some stuff that was filmed in Georgia. I want to say that I've read all, yeah. all the prison stuff was filmed in New Orleans for sure, yeah. and, and a lot of it was there. But I think, like as far as like the cornfield stuff and a lot of that side of things was filmed. Yeah, all, all in the south. 
where it was very right. hot was over the hot. summer. <laughs> yeah, humid. And then I think there was a hurricane that came through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a big one. Uh, New Orleans last year, yeah. which makes things much more humid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it stopped production. It, mm-hmm. Everyone had to evacuate for a while. It was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and made the weather so much worse. <laughs> yes, it was, it's very sticky. Yeah. I enjoyed how they were, they, you know, they flash from Jimmy in jail in prison and then Greg Kinnear's story, the detective and homicide type case, um, kind of how they were going at the same time, but kind of connected them. It was pretty seamless how they flashed from one to the other. Yeah. And they didn't feel disjointed at all. Yeah. And it's very interesting because they they're they're flashing between both these stories kind of back and forth Mm -hmm. from now until the rest of the episode. The part with the investigation with Greg Kinnear's character, Brian Miller, is earlier. Mm -hmm. Like Jimmy's stuff is happening in 96. And then they're sort of flashing back to like 1994 with Mm-hmm. The investigation and the Jessica Roach murder and stuff like that, that is happening before. So that part, eventually the story connects, but it's mm-hmm. sort of like a flashback. And then they're flash forwarding back to Jimmy being in jail and his whole yeah. deal. But it doesn't feel like you're kind of bouncing. It's very, yeah. It's this, it flows really well. It's the same, it's the same story, mm-hmm. but it's two different stories at the same time. Yeah. And you, you feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a note here to mention that Greg Kinnear is left-handed and I didn't know that before. And I, I am also left-handed. So I have to like, I take note of whenever I see someone on TV left-handed, I'm like, oh, he's left-handed. Must be a left-hander thing. Cause my sister said the same thing. Right? It is. It totally is. <laughs> like I pointed to the screen even and like, I, you know, there was a rule where no one could talk, but I still pointed to the screen and pointed to my mom was watching with me and she's also left-handed. <laughs> so I'm like, look. <laughs> he's left-handed in fact my sister even at one point taryn is eating with his left hand and she goes is he left-handed <laughs> but he's not but maybe he eats he's not he's... or maybe it was just for the scene. he was cutting his meat with his right hand so he was using his fork with the left which as a right-handed person yeah I do that too. that's normal yeah i cut i cut with my but left yeah, hand she... <laughs> she she pointed out the left-handedness of greg kinnear as well that's so funny <laughs> mm-hmm. so after they find jessica roach's body they talked to a witness who saw that hmm. um, there was a Dodge van and there was a white man. Um, he didn't really know anything else. He didn't even know the color of the, the van. Uh, yeah. Just that it was a Dodge van. But that's a big <laughs> clue. He's a mechanic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a mechanic. So he knows what what uh, what make the car is, but he doesn't know the color or what the guy looks like. Even though yeah. it's Larry, it has very distinct features. Distinct. So you think he would mm-hmm. recognize something. But the Dodge is very important because that comes back. It does. That, play. That's a big clue. Um, and so mm-hmm. it cuts to 13 months after they find mm-hmm. her body. That's when Brian Miller finds a report of two girls getting harassed by a guy in a Dodge mm-hmm. van. And so that gives him the lead and they figure out that that van belongs to Larry. So that's big. Yes. And he has to make a lot of like phone calls to... Like to see where there's reenactments and yeah, so yeah, he calls. Um, uh, Larry's really into Civil War react- yeah. reenactments. So yeah, that's a that's another big clue that that Miller finds is he talks to Chris Drysdale, mm-hmm. who's a detective in Indiana, and he tells him that Larry does Civil War reenactment reenactments. So that's a big clue. Yeah, and then yeah, so Jimmy it cuts back to Jimmy again, and he's 
talking to his dad and he tells him he's considering this deal that the FBI brought to him. And and Big Jim's like, Mm -hmm. no, don't do this. This is he's very opposed to him taking this deal. Yeah. Because what happens if it doesn't go right? Yeah. He would end up being stuck in this maximum security Mm -hmm. place. They you know, he could get time added Mm -hmm. to to his sentence. It's a bad idea. Big Jim says, no, don't do it. And this is only Ray Liotta's second scene and it's a small, you know, the short scene so far. He's amazing. Not that I was surprised. Right. He's so good in this. Yeah. He plays it really well. And even Taryn and Ray, even though they're essentially blocked by a uh, plexiglass type of a thing, their chemistry is really good together. And, you know, they're separated. They're not yeah face-to-face. Yeah, they have this connection and, and they're really... You can tell that, like, it's they have kind of a complicated relationship, but it's a really loving mm-hmm. father and son relationship yeah. there. And it, yeah, it comes, yeah, like you said, it's only been two scenes, but it really mm-hmm. is coming across already. So that's, it's really cool. Yeah. I'm excited to see more future yeah. episodes. Um, and this is also, we see like a, a, a montage sort of like a prison life montage. So we see like Jimmy working mm-hmm. out and he's like running in the yard and lifting weights and stuff mm-hmm. and dealing out these porno magazines. And it kind of is giving you this vibe, like generally just showing how he's unhappy in prison. and Yeah. And debating the the plea or the not the plea, the 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 deal. Yeah. This this deal with the the deal. Yeah. But it also shows that he was kind of the big guy on campus at this prison. Like he was the guy people went to and he was the tough guy. And I think that'll kind of foreshadows how he's not going to be in the next yeah. prison. I thought that was interesting. And uh, we also see, it, it cuts back and forth a lot between mm-hmm. Jimmy's side and Greg Kinnear's, yeah. Brian Miller's The end side. of the episode had yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot of this had, it was cutting back and forth. So I'm, I'm not going in order necessarily <laughs> of what we're talking yeah. about, but because we, we also learn that um, there was a revolutionary war reenactment that happened mm-hmm. the day before Jessica Roach was missing. So that's something that Brian Miller figures out. Yes. So that's a, a another big clue that that pops up here. Mm-hmm. I liked. Um, I don't know if it was that specific one. I think it was the time before when he was on the phone with the detective. But he's fixing the window. Right. He's <laughs> like WD forty. It's just it such and... a mundane, mundane thing to do while you're on the phone. I think most people do stuff like mm-hmm. that, where you're just doing something totally random while you're getting this big news yeah. for something. And he fixed it. Through that the whole funny. phone yeah. call, he fixed the, you know, the, yeah. the the window wasn't working. And then I just thought it was, yeah, I just thought that was funny how he's just doing something so mundane. Yeah. And it makes me wonder that and another scene that I want to talk about in a second kind of makes me wonder like what if these kind of things are going to come into play later at some point. I don't know if it's going to yeah. like be a hint of something because yeah. later Brian Miller is talking on the phone to this same Indiana detective again, and they're on cell phones. Both of them are on cell phones, but it's mm-hmm. the you know it's the early '90s, so it's very yeah. low tech. You know, the cell phone's yes. huge; it takes up Greg Kinnear's whole face, mm-hmm. and it's like buzzing, and you know, the, it's it's a bad connection. And then the Drysdale's like, "Let me jump on my mm-hmm. landline." Land yeah, line. so old old tech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny, but that's also when. Miller's just learning all these things about Larry. So he, he learns mm-hmm. that Larry's dad works as a grave digger. And Larry, so Larry's kind mm-hmm. of like a weird guy, but the Indiana police basically consider him harmless. Mm-hmm. They tell Miller that Larry confessed to a missing persons case in Marion, 
which right. is referring to the Trisha Reitler mm-hmm. case. But it was they said it was just him that he's just all talk confessing. Just he just likes to confess to things, and he didn't have anything to right. do with it. They they are fully they actually ended up arresting somebody. Yeah, and they're fully convinced that Larry is totally he's all talk and he's all harmless. Yeah. Like he sees the stories in the paper and confesses or just to get the attention mm-hmm. or something. Also, um, Sammy comes to visit Jimmy in prison. So we're cutting back, <laughs> cutting back and forth. Um, but we're cutting back to Jimmy and she tells Jimmy that his dad had a stroke and that he, his health is not not good. Not great. Yeah. And you can see Jimmy's um, kind of fear yeah. that oh, I'm, my dad's not doing great i need to i need to do something and she really she puts the blame on jimmy she just spells it out like Mm -hmm. the stress that you are putting on him is the reason why he's so sick and that he's not gonna live 10 years while you're in jail right he'll be lucky to live three i think she said yeah something like that yeah i think it was around this moment that you could start to feel suspense building right this is kind of where the story the music where it's taking off yeah, you can start to feel the momentum start to go. And I, I put like it was my notes say forty four minute mark suspense build. So I was it was you could feel that anticipation of something big is about to happen. Right. And yeah, so that's um Jimmy is meeting with Lauren McCauley again and he's like, Okay, let's mm-hmm. do it. I'll do the deal. And she's like, Oh, actually, mm, <laughs> we're thinking about You're doing just an applicant. yeah we're thinking about maybe going for someone else doing this not we're not just considering you we're considering other people too yeah well it was funny because he come the scene starts with him being very cocky mm-hmm. and like yeah i'll do it like of course i'll be fine and then when she says you're not the one the only one being you know looked at he kind of gets that knocked down kind yeah of, oh taken down a peg a little bit yeah that the air deflated out of his sales a little bit <laughs> um and so this is also cutting back to uh brian miller again <laughs> back and forth back mm-hmm. and forth uh, this is when brian miller meets larry for the first time and so he's he meets yeah this uh drysdale uh detective guy who he's been talking on the phone with mm-hmm. this whole time they meet up for the first time they go and they meet larry in this like conference room type place Mm -hmm. there's also there are other detectives there from the marion case and so and we see detective Mm -hmm. russ aborn for the first time played by colin moss that colin yes who looks totally different he does yeah i've never seen him look like that his birthday was just the other day it was the the day of the the episode premiere wasn't it Mm -hmm. it was the seventh yep he shares a birthday with sophia bush i digress (laughs) (laughs) one tree hill fans will get it um if yeah if you guys are one tree hill fans Kristen has another podcast all about one tree hill yes. that you should check out this is the place this is the place find it on spotify i'll even link it in the show notes today awesome. <laughs> but yeah so this is when miller and larry meet for the first time and he immediately compliments his burn sides that's uh mm-hmm. and he kind of gets in his good graces right away by calling them burn sides which according to larry is the proper term for them yes and um and they have a little chat Yes. I thought it was really interesting how Paul plays him without making eye contact. He looks down or over all of their heads when he's speaking because it's almost like he's remembering these scenarios in his head because he thinks that they're dreams 
it's almost like he's re- like recalling them in his brain as dreams. Yeah. And so he's not making eye contact with anybody and he kind of moves his head in a very almost calculated way. Yeah. To try to recall these stories. I thought that was really like a cool acting choice to make that Paul did. Yeah, I guess we should say that this is the first time we actually see mm-hmm. Paul Walter Hauser as Larry in the show, um, which is kind of towards mm-hmm. the end of the episode. And yeah, he is very serial killer-ish. <laughs> almost and almost meek. Like he's he comes across as very meek and Right, because he has to come not confident. The, the detectives in Indiana think he's like this nice guy. You know, he's like he's just mm-hmm. kind of like harmless. Yeah, just kind of a little a little weird, but friendly, yeah, quirky, not a murderer by any means. Yeah, just doesn't really understand social situations. Right, but not they they don't even think he, he's connected to these murders yeah. at all. He's just kind of weird. But he's just talking. Yeah. I did want to note that he says he would never dream of hurting two girls. Mm-hmm. And I just underlined two girls because I'm like, yeah. is he saying he could dream of hurting one girl or hurting well, he did say 40 girls? He hear, like he dreams of killing girls. Mm-hmm. Um and it's like he's at having an out-of-body experience in his dream. Yeah. But I think it's because he's having an out-of-body experience. So it feels like a dream to him. Right. But yeah, he insists. They're just dreams. They're just dreams. Mm-hmm. And the, the very last sort of expression that Larry has when he says they're just dreams, is kind of, it kind of gives you mm-hmm. like a creepy vibe. So like you're yeah. thinking like, oh, he, you know, he's he's just like this meek little guy. But then he said mm-hmm. they're just dreams. And then he kind of looks at, looks at Miller mm-hmm. through his eyebrows a little bit. And you're like, wait a second. Because I think, and you'll learn this in our conversation with Hillel, is Larry was actually a very well-read yes, guy. Yes, he was smart. Yeah, so I think he knows what's going on in this moment. Yeah. But his voice in the scene, well, his voice in the whole thing, but this specific scene, because it's the first time we see him, is like, you know, oh, wow, this is going to be intense. Because mm-hmm. just the way he plays it is really... In fact, my sister even said, I hope I don't watch him in anything else because this is going to scar me. <laughs> but yeah, that happens with <laughs> from him. A, lot of, uh, a lot of actors who play mm-hmm. sort of like really creepy guys or you can't you, know, you can't get that out of your head. That's yeah. kind of how I feel about the guy who plays Ramsey in Game of Thrones. I'm like, oh, no, yeah. he's the worst. He's the worst character in that entire show. <laughs> yeah. Not to throw it back to One Tree Hill, but the actor that plays X, um, he's like a kidnapper type person he's apparently the nicest man in the world but i can't see him as anything but x and so it's kind of creepy <laughs> yeah hopefully I, I think paul walter hauser is kind of known enough as being like this comedy guy that hopefully yeah. people aren't uh too freaked out by by paul himself yeah. <laughs> as a person but yeah so the the episode basically ends with um we just kind of see jimmy in his cell reading larry hall's file doing mm-hmm. his homework studying up on him um and that's pretty much it yeah. End of act one. I <laughs> End of <laughs> episode of one. one. End of act three of episode one. Yeah. So that was pilot. Um, and yeah, so we're going to take a quick break and cut to our interview with Hillel Levin. I hope you guys enjoy. It's really good. It'll give you a lot of insight into both Jimmy and Larry and um, kind of the background so far. Yeah, and how it's how rooted in reality this whole thing is. It's fascinating. Yeah, 
Hello, Levin. Thank you so much for joining us. We're just really honored that you uh, came on and uh, and wanted to talk to us today. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. How are you doing? Happy to be here. I'm good. Thanks. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we uh, we both have read the book In With the Devil and uh, right. really enjoyed it. We read it last year and uh, I kind of have skimmed through it since then, but it's... Uh, okay. Um, it's more than what a lot of screenwriters do. <laughs> when they get the rights to your book, uh, we actually had a screenwriter on this project who never read the book. Really? On this oh, wow. one? On this book? Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wonder why it didn't work out for them then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I enjoyed the book. I, I liked okay. it. And so it makes me even more excited to watch the show now knowing what the book was about. Good to hear. Yeah. Um, so I guess we're just going to jump in. We have a bunch of questions for you. Um, so first of all, how how did you become involved with Jimmy Keenan and with, with writing his story? Well, I, I was introduced to him by someone who's kind of a prison concierge. Mm. Uh, he works for um, a lawyer who specializes in sentencing. People don't understand that a big part of Someone who's gone through the legal system is just not the trial, but when they get the sentence, and if they have a really good lawyer who specializes in that area, it can sometimes help them reduce a sentence and also have some input on where they ultimately want to go. And this individual also advises you on how best to deal with uh, life in a prison and what to expect. all these other things. So he uh, had talked to me in the past about some of his other clients, and he was the one that introduced me to Jimmy. Once I learned the story, I have an agent in uh, New York who's a literary agent who works with books, and I have an agent in LA who um, represents books for movie and TV projects. And this actually became a movie and TV project before it became a book. Oh, okay. Um, That's interesting. And at that point, I was writing articles for Playboy, and I could do a piece for them that then would be the basis for a book deal or a movie deal. And the original movie deal was going to be with a producer who had produced a movie called The Departed. Oh, yeah. Okay. And when was that? Uh, This is now 2008. Okay. Well, it's been a while. Life in Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs) Everything moves at a snail's pace. Right. It's either very slow or very fast, it seems like. If you're you're lucky, it moves at a snail's pace. (laughs) And then um, they they brought in a screenwriter who just, like I said, never read the book. <laughs> it took him three years to write a script. Oh, wow. Nothing ever happened. On the other side, um, there was an actor who had grown up where that prison is in the book. I don't know how they're going to portray that prison in the TV series, but a very unusual place that was built in the same era as Alcatraz and Leavenworth. 
and located in Springfield, Missouri, uh, because that was the center of the continental United States. So it's going to be the psychiatric and medical hospital for severe cases of prisoners, whether they were in the East Coast or the West Coast or Leavenworth. Uh, and that would be, you know, a, a convenient place to send them. And this actor who grew up in Springfield, Missouri, is named Brad Pitt. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, yeah, we did read about when this uh, project first came out. We read that that Brad Pitt was originally sort of yeah. signed it up to mm-hmm. to play the role, which yeah, was a long time I mean, ago. and and he took a real interest in it. And you know, I've learned in my other projects that can be as much as a curse as a blessing, mm-hmm. <laughs> because. I mean, what you really want in a movie is a director. Mm-hmm. You know, that's more important than an actor. I mean, it, it sounds hard to believe, but the director is really committed. They're going to make it happen um, to the extent possible. Um, and until you get a director attached, uh, it's not going to be likely. But this was a project kind of on its head, you know, where. You had um, a studio commit first to a big time actor and then to a screenwriter. But, you know, there was never really a director who could take charge, which I think was key to getting a good screenplay and everything Mm -hmm. else. Right. So, you know, that that was an unusual. And then it just it went to different producers and it ended up was someone named, um, I believe it's Richard Plepler. And he was, in those days, the head of um, HBO. Oh, okay. And he was the one who oversaw Game of Thrones, but, you know, most important, Sopranos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then AT&T bought HBO, and he decided he didn't want to work for AT&T. Um, but when he went to Apple TV, he took the book with him and I, you know, people don't know what producers do. I don't really fully know. I mean, yeah, it's a mystery. (laughs) No, but here's an individual. I mean, they put together the right team, I guess. Mm -hmm. It it seems like it for sure. Just from what we can tell. I mean, he executive producers who you never know about. And then. They got this great showrunner, Dennis Lehane, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, really got a very good cast. Uh, I know with you, starting with Taron Edgerton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was what drew us in. (laughs) Paul Walker Hauser. um, My gosh, you know, uh, you know, going on to, uh, of course, Ray Liotta. Yeah. Yeah. And Kinnear is really kind of the hero so oh yeah and yeah just they got these big i mean big movie stars for these roles it's yeah it's very cool it's gonna i think bring a lot of people to know the story yeah i agree so anyway i i you know just to backtrack so i met jim i did that email it was like a movie project then i had to finish the article for playboy which became the intellectual property that's kind of like the 
the foundation of a movie or TV project, um, and then spent a couple of years writing the book, which was kind of difficult. I, you know, to figure out it's a, it's a complicated story. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you not only did you work with Jimmy, but you also interviewed Larry Hall for like the that half of the story At one too. Point, I, I did manage to get through to him. Um, and so, you know, about a third of the book is Jimmy's story, which I think is very compelling mm-hmm. and very. people will find fascinating just his own history and why he felt he did need redemption and the relationship with his father, which was really key, uh, you know, it was played by Ray Liotta mm-hmm. in the series. Yeah. And then I, I felt my responsibility also was to fully understand Larry Hall outside of, you know, his relationship with Jimmy. And this whole issue of serial killers, which to my surprise, you know, really has not been dealt with very well in popular culture. Right. You know, right. people know about Dexter and Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So Hunter and mm-hmm. has nothing to do with serial killers. I mean, absolutely nothing. These guys can come in, the local police, in the case of Larry Hall, not only didn't catch him, they thought he was innocent. They were gonna testify in his defense. Wow. So they know nothing of it's like saying if you have a murder in, in a you know a jurisdiction for a lot of police that's like saying uh, a serial killer did it is like saying a UFO landed in your backyard. Right. So why right. why is law enforcement so it, it just seems like they're very against assuming that it's a serial killer. Why do you think that is? You know, basic law enforcement, uh, homicide investigation, it kind of starts with concentric circles around the victim. Mm-hmm. And I mean, literally, it starts with the family and it extends to the friends and then it extends to the friends of friends and then it goes out further to someone who could possibly relate, be related in terms of in the same place at the same time, you know, a a first date, um, you know, that kind of thing. So their discipline is really focused on finding that individual related to the victim. And then very often they just develop what they call tunnel vision, Mm -hmm. you know, which is laser focused on you know, this was the bad boyfriend. Everybody hates him. Parents don't like him. You know, maybe he's got some kind of dicey personality. Uh, in the case of one of uh, Larry's victims, there was someone who was in the same vicinity as the victim, you know, the night she was abducted and killed. And he was a muscular black guy. Uh, he was a thief. Nothing in his background, however, said that he was ever guilty of sexual assault or murder or anything. But the police in that town really did not like him. And he was a pretty convenient, and he had a 
girlfriend who was working in the cafeteria where the victim was a college student was working. And, you know, it was that confluence of things. And that night he had uh, stolen some copper. And, you know, so you had a few phone calls and that happened to converge. And as far as the police were concerned, that all kind of incriminated him. And mm -hmm. ultimately, he probably received a much stiffer sentence. And the judge, when he sentenced him, said, we all know what you really did. Because at that point, they had, and they never had any real evidence against him for uh, abducting and killing that, that uh, girl. But the implication from the judge is, we all know what you did. They can only charge. And he got a real yeah. like twelve years, twelve year sentence for stealing a lot of copper pipes. Wow, but that's typical. I mean, you go if you research other serial killers, almost invariably some innocent person has been accused of the crime, and in some celebrated cases like one here in Illinois. Uh, those people who were landscapers in the vicinity of where the young girl died were on death row and really close to execution. Um, and the serial killer is not unlike Larry, by the way, even talk like, talks like him. You know, the DNA proved that, in fact, he was the one that did it. Um, and again, you know, some of these prosecutors and unfortunately, the families are so invested in those initial investigations that they can't believe anyone else did it. Right. And they, it's not unusual for them to really resist turning over DNA evidence to prove you know, who the real killer was. But fortunately, in this case, they did. And those two people were ultimately, you know, released. Right. And so with um with larry hall eventually getting charged he only got charged with kidnapping originally and got sentenced just for that why do you think first of all why well, did it's, it it's, really that far? It, it's unusual mm -hmm. and it's for ultimately it's fortunate but you know the way our criminal systems work homicide is something that tends to be charged by the state so if you're arrested in a state and guilty of, you know, some part of that crime in that state, it's the state's laws that govern. And it's the state authorities that prosecute, you know, the local police, the local uh, prosecutor, the county prosecutor in, in many cases. So I believe that if the Jessica Roach, the girl he was ultimately convicted of killing. Right. That if it had only ended up inside of Indiana, I don't think they would have ever convicted him. Oh. Because again, uh, the police and the, even the forensic people were really incompetent. And the local police never saw him as any kind of threat. But what he did with this victim was he went over the state line. So she actually was in Illinois where she was abducted. And because he crossed state lines, it had the potential to be a federal case. 
And unless you kill someone for a goal of terrorism or a hate crime, you cannot be charged with homicide. Oh, that's interesting. So the most severe crime they could charge him with was kidnapping. And when I say that was fortunate, is that then you got involved of federal prosecutors who were really good. Um, FBI, again, FBI is not good with serial killers. <laughs> but, you know, there's still, they played a role. And it ended up being tried in federal court, not state court, in Illinois. And as the book says, I don't know how it's going to be dealt with in, in the TV series. The first time Gary, uh, Larry was tried, the case went to the appeals court, federal appeals court, and they threw it out. So he had to be tried again. But uh, nevertheless, I think, you know, it was still a better venue to try him in than uh, in Indiana. That's right. interesting. Yeah. And then he got, he was sentenced to life. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. In the second, he was retried. So the first trial, they wanted to show he was a serial killer. And they really focused on this girl in, um, who was abducted on the college campus at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And um, her body was never found. And yet there was an incredible amount of incriminating evidence against Larry. And he had somewhat confessed, like a lot of the serial killers. I mean, they live with this monster inside them and they, a lot of them do confess, then they pull back. They realize mm -hmm. the consequences of their confession could get them killed or executed. Um, but nevertheless, he said enough that really was unknown to anybody but the killer that could have got him executed uh, with that second case. So the first trial tried to show both uh, Jessica Roach in Illinois and this young woman, uh, Reitler in mm -hmm. Indiana. And then the second trial, they left out Reitler and just focused on Roach. Just to you get know, that yeah, conviction. Yeah, in the cornfield, yeah. Not to overdo it. and But again, the reason the case was thrown out was, you know, they had, the judge was very strict about bringing in consultants who would say Larry had been coerced into a confession. Uh, and the consultant hadn't even interviewed Larry but just looked at tapes and things like that, which is why the judge did not think it was so he thought the jury could make up its own mind. And then Larry on the stand was not, I mean, he kind of showed his true self uh, in that first trial. Um, and that showed he was not some simple guy who was going to be rolled over. Uh, right. He was kind of smarter than people thought he was. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. That had an impact as well. The second trial, they didn't bring in that second case, and he did not testify in his defense. Um, are there traits in Larry that are 
like something that you can find in in all serial killers or in most serial killers like is there a lot of well like i say in the book you know that of the you know 24 or so traits that people find in the typical serial killer you know running those by larry is like running uranium by a geiger counter i mean he just like hits 14 <laughs> of you know the number one it's deeply organic the worst killers um, have something related to a brain issue uh, very often it's i mean in the case of like the most famous serial killer in Illinois is John Wayne Gacy. Sure. He -hmm. killed, I think, like 31 young men. And um, he was dropped on his head as a baby. Bundy, I forget exactly what his issue was, but he had another, I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating how many of these people had um, neonatal or, you know, just soon after they were born, they had brain damage. Hmm. So, yeah the bizarre thing with Larry in many ways is he was an identical twin and he had, he was a syndrome where his twin named Gary. So you got Larry and Gary Mm -hmm. was actually positioned in the womb in a way that he got more nutrition and more oxygen than Larry. And these, um, Babies often emerge with um, not looking anything alike. Is that true? That's true with Larry and Gary. Even though they're identical twins, they don't look a lot alike. And that was the case with Larry and Gary. Gary was a little smaller, better looking. You know, Larry was kind of puffy and had a lot of acne as they grew up. And people thought he was slow, uh, which was not the case. But had a different uh, personality, and, and like uh, Gary's very gregarious. But when he emerged from the womb, he was blue, and and clearly there was some oxygen deprivation. Yeah. At that point, so that's something that ticks off. We do know that a very difficult upbringing, you know, in poverty, not unusual alcoholic abusive father that's the case a smothering mother you know everybody thinks about psycho and right two sides of that there are abusive mothers who the serial killers basically want to kill the women who look like the mother then you have the smothering mother who pretty much makes it difficult to have a normal relationship with a woman Right. Mm-hmm. They want someone who lives up to their mom, right. to the idea that they have of women. Yes. And, and definitely the case with Larry. I mean, this guy could do horrible things to women. And yet his on the phone, you know, other inmates and social workers would tell me, oh, sweetie, darling, how are you? I love you. All these other, I mean, which isn't that doesn't mean you're a serial killer, but there was <laughs> yeah. that element to Larry that was be above and beyond hmm. what right. people would talk about with their, their mother. So, you know, all these different socioeconomic issues, the biologic issues, 
you know, other inadequacies. And then, you know, you have this kind of condition that is, I mean, Larry uh, was very focused on werewolves. Oh, yeah. Did a lot of drawings and things like that. I don't know if he fully understood that. Again, I mean, this guy was really well read in a lot of ways. But is that is that the is that sort of the impression that you got from from speaking with him directly or just from your research? Yeah, totally. And then talking mm -hmm. to people who knew him. Yeah. Uh, but the werewolf is a real good analogy to serial killers. Because at one point they look, I mean, and again, this is where they're not Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> a lot of them are, they're not Henry Portrait of Syrup. These are not weird looking people, which is why they're so dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, Larry had this little voice and kind of seemed pathetic sometimes in some ways, but certainly friendly. And that's why young women would approach them and they'd turn their back and he'd have a rag soaked in starter fluid, uh, which you used to put on, used to use to put on a carburetor to start a car, but which has a lot of ether mm -hmm. and that would incapacitate even a strong young woman. And, and that's how this one guy could take over. Now he was not a weakling either. He was he had a certain amount of strength about him, um, as some people discovered. But nevertheless, the appearance was very meek and mild, mm -hmm. um, and that is not unusual. But then, like the werewolf, you know, the other side comes out, and it is ferocious. It has no empathy and can do horrible things. And if you look into the whole ideology of werewolves, they really think these go back to the Middle Ages where you had these noblemen who would start doing things like, you know, killing all the kids in their village and, and being able to get away with it. And, you know, just, you know, horrible mass murder that they did because they could get away with it. And, and a lot of the stories, the original werewolf stories kind of spring from that history. You know, that is another element of some of these most dangerous serial killers. And the other thing really interesting about Larry is despite his shyness, uh, his awkwardness, his, you know, issues with women, they, a lot of these guys adopt this mask um, you know, what they see as being normal in society. So in the case of John Wayne Gacy, he had a little private construction business, but he's also involved in politics and he was known in his community as a Pogo the Clown. And he, <laughs> you know, dress up as a clown and do benefits. And, you know, Bundy would get involved in uh, party politics and believe it or not, like anti-rape groups and the colleges he was in. And again, some of it, this behavior helps them find potential victims. So it's not all just, you know, out of the pureness of their art. Right. But it's also this desire to be 
a part of society in a way that is still really artificial. I mean, so these people just don't know how to connect. And in the case of Larry, he got deeply into Civil War reenactment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, to the extent where at one point he wanted to look like someone named General Burnham, who was famous for the uh, General Burnside, was famous for his elaborate mustache. Yeah, right. That famous facial hair. And then he grew that, you know, to have Burnside's and then ultimately realized that the real general was like a lot taller. No. (laughs) Well, uh uh, that's not good enough. You're too short. Don't even try. But he kept those uh, mutton chop sideburns. (laughs) Right. Which, by the way, made him really recognizable. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, man, this guy would want to blend in with the woodwork. So it's kind of hard to, you know, make these things fit together. And yet they really are part of one person who really feels he's not fitting in with society and does these more elaborate, ostentatious things that can call attention to himself, you know. Um, do you think that contributed to why Larry and Jimmy sort of were able to connect? Was that sort of a, a similar well, I think it was very difficult for them to, for Jimmy to figure out how to connect with them because he was so different. Mm-hmm. You know, this was not a guy into sports. This was not a guy, you know, Larry was had a lot of interests that had nothing to do with Jimmy's <laughs> interests. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in addition to the Civil War uh, reenactment, he would also collect, you know, Native American memorabilia and um, believed, he and his brother believed that they were part Miami Indian. Okay. Um, I, I don't think it's true. Uh, I certainly spent a lot of time trying to see if that was true. But in Indiana, of course, Indian, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> like so much of our area in the Midwest and the United States, you know. We've yeah, got that seems like a very American, like Native American name all around us, right? Yeah. But um, you know, in most states, people really don't identify with Indians at all, and hardly even know what the names relate to. But believe it or not, in Indiana, especially where they grew up, there was kind of a cool mystic thing about it. And um, the Miami uh, Indians, who were the prominent tribe in that area, were that unique tribe that said, okay, this is what we're dealing with. We got to act like the white man. We got to you know, do everything to assimilate in society. And in return for that, they were removed like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And then when they came back to Indiana, they did not get a reservation, like a lot of tribes. They got some money, and that was it. But because there was no isolation or ghettoization with a, a reservation, they were very much tied into society. And a lot of People growing up, especially Larry and Gary, thought that it was really cool to be an Indian. And they would find, uh, you know, a lot of the arrowheads and things like that 
which was another element of Larry's background that made him so dangerous is he knew where all these farmer fields were and all the woods were mm-hmm. perfect places to bury people. Uh, but a lot of that was, you know, their two big hobbies were finding those arrowheads and finding discarded beer cans, which they collected. <laughs> Uh, which kind of was kind of a big thing in those days. Not, you know, Budweiser, but all these brands that, you know, are no more. So <laughs> as a result of that, these guys were in dumps and farm fields and stuff that, you know, later gave them an idea where to bury people. So, But the Indian thing becomes really important to the story because it's not a blackbird necessarily that he's carving again i don't know what the series yeah that's kind of still a mystery for us too we're not sure where this blackbird it's a falcon i don't want to spoil things but he's (laughs) and and originally we wanted to call the book a falcon tale before we came up with in with the devil so that was originally that was the book's original title was going to be the falcon's tale okay and then that got converted to Blackbird. Uh, but the publishers thought that was too literary. They're like true crime people are not literary. <laughs> uh, book publishers don't have a lot of respect for true crime, unfortunately. Hmm. So they thought In With the Devil was what true crime readers wanted yeah. to read. I mean, it is very catchy. It's very it's a attention grabbing. Do you uh, still keep in touch with Jimmy? Do you have a relationship with him now, or yeah, we had a a professional relationship? Okay, that's friendly. That I mean, I've written other books with other people. I, you know, I wrote this book. I think you mentioned Siri that you looked at it called "When Corruption Was King." Yes, yeah, and I I actually listened to um to the podcast that you talked about too, the, um, the one that Jake Halpern did. Um, I listened to that, which is a pretty good dive in like a a good update to, to Bob Cooley's story. Yes. And I just want to say, you know, I'm a professional journalist Mm -hmm. and a reporter since 78, 79. And to me, there's a wall that has to exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we both want the book to be successful, but like I said to Jimmy and I said to Bob Cooley, who When Corruption Was King is about, I'm not here to be your, I'm not your PR guy. Right. Right. You know, my first responsibility is not to you. It's to the reader. Yeah. Right. To the story. And I, I really have to do the grunt work. First of all, exactly what you just said. It's mm-hmm. got to be a good story. Mm-hmm. Which both of both of these stories are for sure. I mean, with both with um, Robert Cooley and with Jimmy, it's they're both really stories that definitely need to be told. I think, and and right. uh, there's a, an audience for them both for sure. Yeah, and I think the way you set it up with you writing it that way without that friendship, kind of, I think that is portrayed in the book where the story is the focal point. It's not fluffy or anything. It's the true grit of the story. And you got to take people where they don't want to go. Right. With Jimmy, where that was really, with both of them, kind of coincidentally, 
it was the relationship with the father. And that was really hard for them. And it sounds like that really comes off very well in the TV series. You cannot, if I had written that as fiction. Uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. You guys know, you know, what uh, the whole movie baloney, you got to have an arc and, you know, yeah. start out here and yeah. go here and, you know, look at the verdict and how that, you know, all of that stuff. This was true. I mean, this guy's life, the arc was just unbelievable. And, and I, I feel the same thing with, with, Jimmy Keene. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, he had to see something in himself. He had an experience. I mean, this was a guy who got into trouble because he just felt he was above the law and too smart to ever get caught. Uh, and he could deal with the Mexican drug dealers. He could deal with the local investigators and always win. And finally, he gets into a situation where you know, that's not good enough. Right. I mean, it did, it did work for him for a yeah. while there. <laughs> and he goes through an experience again, without a spoiler, that <laughs> forever changed his life. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have no doubt that he would ever do anything illegal again. Yeah. You know, after what he's gone through. So, you know, that, that's his arc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was the the connection that you mentioned between Bob Cooley and Jimmy and their stories? Well, Jimmy, without even realizing it, was sharing a cell with the leader of the Chicago mob. Oh wow! Oh, <laughs> had, no, had no clue until I said, "Who?" And the guy's name is Calabrese, and just like uh, Cardo, I mean, this guy started out as. The, the worst, you know, most violent, physical, bomb-blasting character, um, and then, you know, develop some sense of, of leadership and management style. But again, you know, for a mob that was a shadow of what it was under Ricardo, and then, you know, became fairly famous in Chicago because he was ultimately tried in something they called family secrets. And it was his uh, brother and son who testified against him. Oh, wow. And some other mob leaders and, and really closed the circle on some really infamous executions and murders that no one had, you know, everyone had a suspicion why these people died. But, you know, in this family secrets trial, it was made clear, this is who killed them. This is how we killed them. And again, you know, Jimmy was totally oblivious to that. <laughs> um, and the father, who he just thought was like a great father, again, this is all the father and son. <laughs> At a certain point, you know, when the son has to go to prison too, the father's like, you know, he's a young guy like you. You guys should be cellmates. <laughs> right. And so I'm going to yeah. get out of here and you guys will be cellmates. And yeah. Jimmy wow. The new one. But at that point, he gets transferred to meet Larry. Yeah. So that, yeah. And that's, that's in your book there. And I think that's like chapter two, I think, if I remember. Yeah. So I did not, you know, ever understand, you know, when I met Jimmy, I had no idea that those things would link up. Yeah. Like what? 
Frank Calabrese, really? Yeah, he was kind of an important guy in the mob, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Having deja vu looking at this guy yeah. again. Yeah. That's a fun connection. <laughs> Are you planning on watching Blackbird at all, or are you looking forward oh, to yeah. it? Oh, yeah, I'll okay. watch it at some point, you know, for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else that you want to, like, uh, say? Or is there any, um, like, future projects, projects that you're working on that you can talk about at all? Or is there... Well, not much, but it's, uh, you know, I've dealt with some cases that have been where people have been wrongfully convicted but uh, I have come across a case again in Indiana that's the worst I've ever seen. Oh, wow. So, you know, and I think people are really fascinated with cold case investigations, but this mm -hmm. was a cold case investigation that cleared the killer and put an innocent man in prison for 40 oh. years. Sounds like an interesting story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's the current one I'm working on. <laughs> right on. All oh, right. We'll look forward to that. Yeah, we'll definitely okay. have to look out for that when things come to fruition for that. But yeah, thank you so much for, for doing thank this you. with us. We really appreciate it. Okay, no problem. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay. Thank you for writing such a great book. <laughs> okay, glad you liked it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that little uh, bit of the interview. And like I said before, we're going to release the full interview as its own episode. So that should be coming pretty soon, too. But for now, we need to get into episode two. Yeah. So, yeah, Kristen. Two episodes this week. So episode two is called We Are Coming, Father Abraham. And the description is Agent Macaulay prepares Jimmy for the mission. Detective Miller questions Larry about the m missing women leading to a polygraph test. Yeah, polygraph test. That whole scene. Yes. Oh, man. We'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. This one's a lot to unpack. Yes. So, yeah, the first episode is a lot of sort of exposition about Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And we get a little bit about the case with Larry Hall. And then at the very end, we see we see him for the first time. And so this one kind of gets a lot more into uh, Larry Hall's side of things. Yes. But it still goes back and forth a lot, just like the first episode did. And I feel like this one had less, well, it was still a lot of Jimmy, but it was a lot more Larry. Yeah. Like, it had a lot more of that to it as opposed to. Yeah. And it finally connects their two stories directly by the very end of the episode. So the first scene of the episode, we see a girl walking, just walking down the sidewalk. This is Trisha Reitler, mm -hmm. who's played by Rachel Looney. Um, and so we see her walking down the road and she, we, we see Larry Hall's van. And so he kind of pulls mm -hmm. up in front of her and she walks, just walking down the sidewalk casually. Mm -hmm. And the camera is following her and then it passes the van and we see that she does not walk past the van. So she is she's been stopped inside. Yes. Inside the van. Yep. She disappears. And so we we see Sapita Moafi meeting with Jimmy again. Mm -hmm. They go through this whole thing about what Jimmy likes about women. And yeah. We see him try and turn on the charm with her again. He's kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, hey, I like I like this. I like this connection we're making. And he's kind of trying to hit on yeah. her and she's still not having it. She kind of gives in a little bit, like kind of 
leans forward and like smiles Mm -hmm. to give him a little bit like just to give him an inch so that he comes back with more yeah um she really knows how to play that yeah because then she immediately flips it and she's like well what do you think larry Mm -hmm. hall doesn't like about women and brings it back to like sort of just brings it back to reality for jimmy Mm -hmm. and he's like yeah like i don't know why would i know that Right. So she's 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 telling him, you need to figure it out. You need to find some way of connecting Mm -hmm. to Larry so that you will be useful Mm -hmm. to me in this. Basically, do your homework. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Otherwise, you're not going to get picked. Right. And yeah, so we're we go back to Larry Hall um, in this conference room with Detective Miller and the other detectives Mm -hmm. from Indiana. And he's describing his dreams in a Mm -hmm. lot more detail. And he dreams that he kills women and he's very insistent, like, it's not like a fantasy that he's killing mm-hmm. women. It's like, this is what's happening in his dreams. Right. Um, and he mentions his twin brother, Gary, for the first time mm-hmm. here, which we'll learn about later in the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a big episode. A lot it happens. It is. A lot happens. <laughs> my notes are very chaotic. Yeah, mine too. And I have two sets of notes. And <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so this is when... This is when Miller shows Larry a picture of Jessica Roach and he mm-hmm. he gets upset. He stops talking. He wants yeah. to go home. The Indiana detectives basically stop the whole thing and um, yeah. they're like, yeah, we'll take you home, Larry. It's fine. Yeah. So this is when we see the detectives all butting heads like the Indiana mm-hmm. detectives and Miller, who's from Illinois, sort of don't see eye to eye exactly because. Yeah, they don't think he did it. Yeah, they, they don't, don't. They think he's harmless. Yeah, they don't want him messing but around. Miller with- knows. Like something's going on here. There's yeah. some red flags. He's trying to follow his lead, and they're like, "This is not a lead. This yeah. we we have our guy in the Trisha Reitler case." And mm-hmm. and Miller even like insults their detective abilities. He's like, "Oh yeah, you guys are really great at your jobs, clearly." And um, <laughs> they get they get really upset at that. And uh, basically, they tell him just to go back to Illinois and work on his yeah. own case and come back later. And uh, that's when the I think infamous line from from greg kinnear where uh the the indiana detectives tell him you respect our sandbox and we'll Mm -hmm. respect yours and then it cuts to uh to miller in his car looking at them driving away and he says fuck your sandbox um which is a line that everyone loves (laughs) (laughs) i remember on the panel um after the viewing dennis lahane was like i just wanted to hear greg kinnear say fuck your sandbox that's all i wanted to make this show for (laughs) i still need to watch that i tried not to watch a whole lot of stuff just so that i didn't get too many thoughts from other people into my own reviews oh yeah sure i had to go back and watch a lot (laughs) meanwhile i was like consuming everything my brain is so full my all of my thoughts are blackbird but no other thoughts just blackbird (laughs) nothing wrong with that <laughs> it's probably good as a as a host yeah. of a podcast all about it right that, yeah. that's all i'm thinking good about. to have a lot of thoughts <laughs> fuck your sandbox all right yeah. um and the, oh that is when uh miller meets up with lauren mccauley which i think is this mm-hmm. the first time we've seen them together yeah because I, I don't think they were even on the phone before that yeah because she calls him later So this is the first time that they that they meet up and they're at this diner and they're talking about the case and they they discuss that since Larry crossed state lines that it's going to be a mm-hmm. federal case, um, yeah. which, as you heard in Hillel Lovin's interview, mm-hmm. um, they typically are not tried federally. Murder cases are not. Because they cross he crossed state lines, they were able to do it. Yeah. Federal. I did want to note that during this scene, Lauren McCauley drenches her burger in mustard. Like it's yes. a lot of mustard. <laughs> 
she also does a little dance when her uh, burger is yeah she like gasps and is so excited yeah. about food which, which is, as someone who loves food i yeah very relatable <laughs> but she i do not put that much mustard on my burger no. <laughs> she like she goes for like two big mm-hmm. full squeezes yeah. and she and she put ketchup on it too There's, yeah <laughs> that is a wet burger <laughs> yeah um but yeah so they talk about beaumont and that cuts to um them meeting up with beaumont and this agent who is going to run the polygraph mm-hmm. mark ellenberg mm. um yeah so they, they meet up with him and basically set up the polygraph for Larry. But before that happens, it cuts back to Jimmy and Lauren meeting up again. And he's being real cocky. He's like, I think I am actually the only candidate that you're talking to. And he kind of gives all these reasons why he is the best person for the job. He's like, I'm a black belt in Taekwondo and all these things. So that's when Lauren's like, okay. And she shows him a full other candidate that they're Mm -hmm. considering for this job. Which I think she just kind of brought somebody up to to mess with his head. Yeah, it's just like a, um, a mugshot, basically, that you can yeah. see. But she says all, the, all these things about him and how he's not as cocky yeah. as, and full of himself he's as like Jimmy a, is. a champion fighter and all of this stuff. So, yeah. 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 So she's knock, like, knock Jimmy down a few pegs. Which clearly he needs. He needs mm-hmm. to be knocked down a little bit. And yeah, and so she gets him to open up about his childhood and mm-hmm. convinces him that he if if he does get this job is what they keep calling it if he does mm-hmm. get the job um she tells him to think about what it was like when he was a kid and really mm-hmm. um live in that moment and yeah. uh it'll help him connect with Larry in that way yeah that he has to kind of be his biggest cheerleader yeah that he's not going to let anything happen to him yeah and yeah, so this cuts to Larry being brought in for the polygraph. So this is a really big moment. Big. A lot of stuff happens in this that really did happen that affected the mm-hmm. case. He, When he signs his waiver rights, he doesn't actually use a signature. He signs in block mm-hmm. letters, and you see mm-hmm. that right away. And then when the agent, who he insists that Larry calls him Mark, when he says, it's, you know, he's going to hook him up for a polygraph, Larry's like, mm-hmm. oh, no, I don't think I'm going to pass a polygraph. Yeah. And then he gets him to start just telling a story, yeah. the stories about it. Um, and meanwhile, Agent Lauren is watching and taking lots of notes. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else, uh, Greg Kinnear is also watching. Well, so actually Greg Kinnear, uh, when they when they first bring Larry in, he uh, um, Larry, <laughs> Larry asks for some water. So Greg Kinnear goes and mm-hmm. grabs, grabs him some water. And when he comes a back in cone. <laughs> – yeah, a little cone, a little paper mm-hmm. cone of water. And when he comes back mm-hmm. in with this water, Greg shuts the door behind him and he's in the room with them. And then Larry says, can you, he asks him to leave. Could you just, would you mind leaving? I just, you, your energy makes me feel itchy. Which yeah. I think is a very good line. <laughs> yeah. Like I've, I feel, that line. I've, I've had people whose energy makes me feel itchy yes. before. I felt yes. that. <laughs> yeah. So Greg leaves. So they're all watching mm-hmm. behind like a two way mirror, um, yeah. him and Lauren and um, the other detective. Um, mm-hmm. Drysdale. Yeah. So Larry just starts spilling everything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark kind of talks him into it. He shows him the picture of Jessica Roach again. And that's when Larry um, yeah. asks if he can touch her. Um, yeah. So he picks up the picture and he starts confessing and he gives all these details that are not publicly known about the case, yeah. like about the clothes that were folded up mm-hmm. and things like that. The earring that was ripped. Which, yeah, none of it is public knowledge. And he says, thing, he says, uh, like, normally I bury all of them. That was mm-hmm. a, a big clue. Yeah. 
And he also doesn't like that someone else got credit for all this, that they arrested someone else. And the folded clothes was like a big thing. Like Mm -hmm. he he didn't fold the clothes. I folded the clothes. Yeah. Um, He shouldn't take credit for that. I did it. Yeah. So he he has this huge confession, which Mm -hmm. the agent, you know, comes out of the room and talks to Greg and uh, Drysdale, not Greg, sorry, I keep doing that. He talks to <laughs> Brian, Brian Miller. Um, and he's like, I need a confession for him. Like, I need to get all I this. I need a computer yeah. ASAP. I need it. Which I was surprised they didn't record him. I feel like that should have been, they should have recorded it. Because how do you, I don't know. But the, I, I think originally they were just going for the polygraph. Yeah. So maybe it might be also a thing of of that time like i don't know if they recorded everything that was going on um in those i guess with the person signing it that shows that they actually just said it oh i had a thought okay um i just it just popped in my head when they're giving uh larry the consent form to be interviewed and he asks to read it first i think that shows him he's aware of what's happening like he knows what he's doing and that's why he asked to read it mm-hmm. first he's not dumb in any sense right. he, he knows what's going on yeah and it's just, and, the, and at that point it was just the waiver of his rights yeah to be allowed consent to be interviewed yeah basically but yeah so they they tell brian miller like you just reeled in a serial killer like he mm-hmm. just confessed to everything yeah and so they rush to get this form this confession form filled out and ready to go and ready for him to sign um agent mark is like He's very affected by what he just heard yeah. Larry say all these yeah. things. He's- and he's typing it extremely fast with everybody yelling. I guess they were yelling to get so they could get Larry to sign it before before he, he changed his mind. Yeah, because he was asking for a lawyer and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they had to get it quickly before anything else happened. And so Agent Mark here is stressed. He is mm-hmm. typing fast. He makes some mistakes. He And they use a template. Yeah. Like a previously... Um, filled out confession form that they're typing over stuff. Yep. And so they're rushing. They and when they it. they deleted um everything out of the form and when they went to change the name, they did not change the last name on the form yep. or so, the location. Right. Cuz it looked I think the location was Tennessee. So yeah, they messed up a couple times just cuz they were mm-hmm. so anxious to get this done and so yeah, the last name was Daniels on the form instead yeah. of Hall and again Larry prints his name. Mm-hmm. And doesn't actually use a signature, which he's fully capable of doing. Yes. That's another clue into Larry mm-hmm. being smarter than they think he yeah. is. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a huge moment in mm-hmm. the case um, and kind of what messes it up for them later um, when they're in court. But that comes later because <laughs> we're <laughs> cutting back to Jimmy again. This is when Jimmy is finally able to talk to his dad again after mm-hmm. hearing about his stroke and um, he's not doing too well. He doesn't tell Jimmy everything about what's going wrong with him. But you can hear it in his voice that he's holding back. Yeah. And he and he says that to to Sammy, um, Mm -hmm. his his partner. He says that he has this shorthand with Jimmy where it's like, Mm -hmm. we don't have to say everything. We know we know what's going on between each other. And Sammy is mad. Yeah. Because she's mad that he hasn't told Jimmy like, um, he had gone blind in one eye at one point right. and he was really sick and couldn't talk at some points. Like she thought that he should have told Jimmy a lot more about what's going on with mm-hmm. his health. But I feel like big Jim didn't want to put on that extra stress onto Jimmy. Right. So. But he's taking it all on himself instead. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a typical parent. Situation. Yeah. 
oh, the, uh, the detectives are, you know, once they get the confession from Larry, they search his house and his vans, mm-hmm. which he has multiple vans, we figure out. Yeah, but only one is super clean. Yes. Everything else is dirty and like almost like a hoarder. Yeah, and that that's a big, a, another big hint. There's all mm-hmm. these big hints that are happening. Yes. But yeah, the cleanliness of his van which is mentioned between Jimmy and Lauren later mm-hmm. as like a big hint to yes. how the DNA of his victims were never found mm-hmm. anywhere on his stuff because he's so good at cleaning. He worked as a the janitor, the best cleaner that the buildings have ever seen. Yes. So he knew he mm-hmm. knew how to clean. Because <laughs> they mentioned when they open the clean van that it smells of like alcohol. Yeah, all these cleaning products. Disinfectant. And and that's where we meet Gary, right? Yeah. So yeah, Detective Miller talks to Gary for the first time. And Gary is fully on Larry's side. He, mm-hmm. He's like, Larry's innocent. He hasn't yeah, done anything he could never wrong. Do it. He's pissed that all this is happening. And so yeah, that's Gary Hall played by Jake McLaughlin. Who looks nothing no, they look nothing alike, which is addressed no. in the next scene because when uh, Lauren and Jimmy meet up again, they first of all, she questions Jimmy about the cleaning and stuff. And so mm-hmm. that's how we figure that out. Yes. And then she tells Jimmy about Gary being his twin mm-hmm. and about what happened in the womb to why they are so different. Yes. Um, which is also, again, addressed in Hillel Evans' interview. Yes. He talks about that. And... uh and so Seeing, she tells uh, Jimmy's her, reaction to her explaining that was right. see, like the confusion, but also is that, are you for real? Yeah. And yeah, so she tells Jimmy to be the Gary to Larry, mm-hmm. be, be like a brother figure, help him out, be on his side and just drops on him. You have the job. We're leaving right now. Get on the plane. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> like, this is happening immediately. And he looked almost afraid and panicked because he didn't know like what like what do I do like where do I go what door do I walk out of yeah it it was like a surprise Mm -hmm. you know he wasn't he didn't think he was gonna leave today yeah Um, I mean not that he had a whole lot to pack but right (laughs) (laughs) yeah so they get Jimmy to an airplane and he Mm -hmm. changes into street clothes Mm -hmm. and they get his cups get to come off too yeah and I assume the other two guys were police officers playing. Yeah, or like marshals, U.S. Yeah. marshals. And they kind of befriended him as they got on the plane. So, yeah, we should talk about this scene a little bit because mm-hmm. um, in the book, this is a big thing where it's like the first time Jimmy feels like a normal person mm-hmm. is when he's being transported between the prisons because they really just treat him. They don't treat him like a prisoner yeah. at all. He's He's wearing normal clothes. They... Not in the show, but in the book, they take him to like a diner. And yeah, I was just going to say like, that they drive him around. Yeah, which they probably just couldn't have two diner scenes in the same episode. Yeah. <laughs> so they yeah. just had they all this cut it. <laughs> normalcy happen on the plane. But um, but yeah, he has like banter with these guards mm-hmm. on the plane. They play cards. Yeah, and they're talking about movies. Mm-hmm. And, and this is another, th- this is where you see Jimmy sort of a, a misogynistic side of mm-hmm. him a little bit just kind of the way he's talking about the movies and about the mm-hmm. actors and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's I think it's the first time where he has like a sense of normalcy for mm-hmm. from a long time. I think he's like enjoying that moment. And and then on the plane also, Lauren talks mm-hmm. to Jimmy again and kind of is getting him prepped. 
Mm-hmm. And um, this is when <sighs> I really wanted to emphasize this part. This is this is when she tells him that only the warden and his doctor are going to know yes. what he's doing. Yes. So which in the trailer. Yep. <laughs> there's a certain Remember- CO. Last episode of our sh- podcast, I said that seems shady. Yes, because you, I feel yeah. like the guard would not know that answer. Yes, but in the trailer, this guard mm-hmm. knows that Jimmy is here to snitch. Mm-hmm. So something happens. Something's happening. <laughs> um, only the warden and the doctor know. Yes. And uh, and Lauren is um, going to pose as Jimmy's girlfriend for yes. whenever she has to visit him. And this is another time where she kind of. <laughs> Is you know, you know, playing into his uh, misogynist. She's so smart. Type she, of a guy. She knows how to get to him, mm-hmm. and so she, yeah, she says like, "Slip me some tongue," you know, whatever you need to do to sell it. And so, and he's like, "We can practice right now." Yeah, his face was like, "Oh, <laughs> right." <laughs> and then she shuts it down real quick. She does. That's that's how it. That's their dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of like. She she lets him flirt with her for a second, and she yeah. kind of entices him a little bit. But then she's like, "This nope. is a job. <laughs> I'm an FBI agent. Sit down." So I'm curious to see, like, once she does have to play like his girlfriend when she goes and visits, like how she'll play that. Yeah, what we're gonna see there. Yeah, like she'll let him go far, but not, and then shut him down real quick once they're behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also on the plane, one of the marshals kind of. It's like, hey, are you are you scared? Like, do you? Mm-hmm. And Jimmy kind of tries to play it off. Like, he doesn't say mm-hmm. anything, but he's kind of smiling. And he's like, I'll get over it. And the guy's yeah. like, don't get over it. Like, stay yeah. scared because cocky yeah. people make mistakes, mm-hmm. which I think is a glaring hint about yes. what's going to happen yes. <laughs> because Jimmy is cocky and he's yeah, going very, to make yeah. mistakes. <laughs> and you can see it in this episode, too. Yep. And we're yeah, we're going to see more and more of that as the show mm-hmm. goes on and they tell him at this point like don't talk to him tonight yeah like take it give slow. it like learn about him when when he eats where he sits what he does like yeah don't rush play into the long it. game don't because he'll know mm-hmm. he'll he'll know something's yeah. up if you talk to him right away yeah so yes going back to larry for a second we um First of all, we see Miller in a hotel room mm-hmm. and he's he's watching TV and he sees on the news that the um, <laughs> the Indiana police yeah. are, you know, breaking this case. And they say that Larry is a suspect in their case, right. which they've been work. They've been working on it. And yeah, he was not happy. Yeah. <laughs> Greg Kinnear is mad, big mad at these guys. And he knew this was going to happen. And he's still. So it shows we go to Larry in shackles in the Indiana mm-hmm. Police Department. You two need any more pictures with him? I can hold the camera. There we go, Larry. And Miller's there to drive him back to Illinois mm-hmm. to try him. Which I feel like was not the safest thing to do, just driving him in his car. Right. Like, just, it was the 90s, so things were different. Yeah, no guards or anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, well, I mean, he's a cop, I guess. But you would think he'd have, like, some sort of, like, this is a suspected murderer. You would think he would have some sort of, <laughs> I guess he was handcuffed in the car, but. Yeah, he's in shackles, and, and, and at the same time, he's also not, he doesn't seem threatening, so maybe yeah. that's part of it. Maybe, yeah. he's, he 
that they're not suspecting him of being a threatening person, even right. though they're also suspecting him of being a murderer. <laughs> right. And I, um, he tries to get him to talk about it. Yeah. And Larry's just not. Yeah. So this is talking. when Larry's like, you coerced this confession out of mm-hmm. me. This, I wouldn't have said that. You yeah. forced me to say it. My lawyer said not to talk to you. Yeah. And the more that Miller is like pushing, mm-hmm. it really is upsetting Larry. Mm-hmm. And then he just busts out into song. Which is where the title of the episode came from. <laughs> right. The Father Abraham song. Mm-hmm. Oh, so more of. So back to Jimmy for a second. Mm-hmm. He is uh, he's off the plane and he's in a van driving to the mm-hmm. prison and he's talking to the guards. They're having more sort of casual, normal conversation. Yeah. All the guards are talking about their kids at various yeah, ages. Jimmy and- notices a wedding ring on one of the guards' hand and he asks them, yeah. do you have kids? And then they are all bantering about the different ages that their children are and the different struggles that they have. And just sort of just talking about normal life stuff. And I think that you kind of see it in Jimmy's face, like, I'm not going to have that. Like, I'm not, that's just not going to be me. I could lose it all. It's more, more about what his dad was talking about, this Mm -hmm. normal life, kids, Mm -hmm. stuff that he just doesn't get. Yeah. I think the, the fear of what's to come is starting to sink in in this moment. It is. Yeah. Because Jimmy starts to kind of second, second Mm -hmm. guess the situation and, I think he's questioning in his mind mm-hmm. if Beaumont is lying. And, right. Well, he says it. He says, like, mm-hmm. what if Beaumont's not yeah. holding up his end of the deal? Because they have that sort of distrust mm-hmm. where like he could be um, lying to me. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Yeah. And the guard, the, fr- the guard in the front seat of the van is like pissed off. He's yeah. like, you have to do this. This yeah. is a serial killer. There's no, that's gonna- no choice. Yeah, like, the serial killer is going to go free if you don't do this. You need to do it. And in the book, don't they, like, this Jimmy has that doubt, and then they drive around again for a little bit. They just do laps around the prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's just nervous. Mm -hmm. But then he finally is like, okay, I'll I'll do it. Fuck it, let's do it. (laughs) Before we get too far from this scene, uh, from last episode of our podcast, we talk about Taryn's hair. And in the van, it looks way lighter. And I don't know if it's the light in the van or the lack of light, but his hair looks completely different than it did when he was (laughs) walking on the plane. Yeah. So so this... (laughs) I am completely confused. This is our Terran hair tracker. Yes. Um, We need to track his hair. So (laughs) I I guess in episode one, it's very dark. And even in like in the shower, it's Mm -hmm. very thick and dark. Dark. But yeah, in this moment in the van... It's kind of closer to Normal. his natural brown hair color. And the it could because he's in the van, they show a lot of his face close. His hairline is real. Like you can see where he had to shave his head for Rocket Man and the hairline that came back after that. Um Right. And it looks the root looks light. Like his <laughs> normal color light. So I'm confused. So if anyone has insight into this hair debacle, we really need answers about what happened with Taryn Edgerton's hair. Yes. (laughs) But I digress. (laughs) Anyway. Taryn hair tracker. Turn it on. (laughs) And so we cut to uh, Larry Hall. His appeal hearing, his appeal is granted. Mm -hmm. And so. Because of the loopholes. Right. Um, because of all the things that went wrong with the in- interrogation stuff, his appeal is granted. And 
that basically puts puts a clock on mm-hmm. them needing to get a, a real confession yeah. out of Larry. Um, and basically they figure out that they need Jimmy to work quickly mm-hmm. to get Larry to talk so that he doesn't walk free. And Macaulay says that she, you know, she told Jimmy to take it slow, mm-hmm. but they said that they have like a month before yeah. stuff gets going on Hall's appeals and, and mm-hmm. freedom and stuff. Um, but then we see Larry in prison for a second. Is he mopping? Is that that one? I think so. Yeah. And then we see Jimmy coming into the prison. And so we yes. see um, Theo Carter escorts Jimmy to do yes. the strip search. And that is played by Joe Will- Williamson. Yes. And he's really just kind of casual and friendly mm-hmm. with him. He calls him Bud a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's escorting him to his cell. And he's like, hang in there. The first week is the worst. Kind of trying to be friendly with him. Yeah, when they were uh, before he does the strip search and he has to put all of his belongings into the um, bucket, he's pulling things out and they must have just shoved things in his pocket for him because he's as he's pulling them out, he's shocked at what he's pulling out of his pocket. Yeah, (laughs) keys, money, all this random like they just shoved things in his pocket. Right, because he didn't have anything before. I mean, he was in jail. He was in prison before. They just like shoved things in his pockets. Yeah. But it was, you could see him like confused as he's pulling things out of his pockets. He's like, this is not mine. <laughs> just thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good detail that the mm-hmm. detectives kind of planted there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he's in the he's in the cell. Yeah. And then we also see Larry. So now Larry and Jimmy are in the same place. Mm-hmm. They haven't connected at all yet. But Mm-mm. we see like it cut, when it's cutting back and forth between Larry and Jimmy. Now they're in the same prison. Yeah. Um, Larry is like working on the boiler and he's talking yeah. to this other CEO about what's going wrong with this boiler. Like you get the impression that he's the go-to guy to fix things. Mm-hmm. So they let yeah. him fix the broiler kind of un- attended too yeah it's just him and then this one mm-hmm. co kind of checks in on him mm-hmm. and uh he asks larry if he wants him to bring him any food mm-hmm. like so he can just keep working through mm-hmm. which i thought was interesting because i'm pretty sure in the book in with the devil the first time jimmy and larry before, the first time jimmy sees larry anyway is, that- is in the mess hall so mm-hmm. that's kind of what i was expecting yeah for him to see them him there for the first time but that doesn't happen no but you do notice that uh jimmy is sitting by himself in this kind of the realization of where he is is Mm -hmm. sinking in because he's around people that are extremely dangerous yeah like these these big he kind of looks at all like the different gangs Mm -hmm. the prison gangs and stuff yeah and uh, starting to sink in for him a little Mm -hmm. bit i think it's gonna really hit him hard later too but and yeah so we see big jim tries to call jimmy in prison again but he's moved and they haven't told him where or how to contact him apparently he needs like a court order in order to know Mm -hmm. where he's gone so that is hard yeah i thought that was interesting that they didn't nobody called his family to let him know that yeah well i think it just it just happened very quickly Mm -hmm. i mean big jim is still gonna play a big part in this whole thing so they're gonna connect again um i think jimmy probably has to be the one to initiate the contact Mm -hmm. again and the the other thing about that is He's basically undercover, so he can't really right say talk to anyone. Uh, yeah, and he can't he can't talk to anyone about his case or what he's doing in this big prison. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Big Jim knows why he's there. Right. But if someone overhears their phone conversations mm-hmm. or something, then that could be a problem. So I think maybe something like that might be what clues in 
just the thinking guard yeah. into knowing about the story. That's my guess. Yeah, that was just I don't have that. anything Maybe to back that up. He overhears a conversation that Jimmy's having with one of like with, you know, Lauren or somebody. Yeah. And he just kind of he clocks mm-hmm. it. He figures it and, out. Uh, yeah. Which could cause problems. Yeah. Or the way he's watching Larry. Yeah. Kind of gives him a clue. Yeah. I'm on I'm on CO Carter watch. <laughs> I'm on Taryn's hair yes. watch. Got a lot of, of things to track mm-hmm. here. <laughs> figure it out and then um it's so nighttime oh but so uh, well yeah so before that though i wanted to talk about um we see brian miller at the table with his daughter oh, and his yeah, daughter's yeah. doing homework um listening to music mm-hmm. i just love his what his daughter says here because he's like how can you do homework mm-hmm. while you're listening to music and she's like um i get straight a's yeah. so whenever that stops happening then you can make it a problem but for yeah. now i'm gonna do this and he basically yeah. looks at her like okay yeah. Uh, yeah fair enough yeah <laughs> all right then and he gets a phone call from lauren yeah and she wants him to work this case with mm-hmm. her and tells him that she has a guy on the inside yeah. and they're gonna figure it out yeah and he tells her like that's a dumb yeah. this is dumb it's not gonna don't work. you shouldn't do that this is not real no. police work that you're doing right now but yeah so at the end uh, Jimmy is locked in his cell for the mm-hmm. night and there's all these like noises. There's like people laughing and screaming and kind of general chaos mm-hmm. of this criminally insane prison. Yeah. So he's he's having a hard time falling asleep and getting out of his head. Yeah. And then this is when we see Larry mm-hmm. escorted back to his cell after working on the boiler all day. And the guard says, good night, Larry. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy clocks mm-hmm. that like, oh, that's Larry. It. That's who it is. That's who it is. So he kind of gets up and and this is the moment where Jimmy and Larry see each other for the first time. They're in cells that Mm -hmm. are kind of close to each other and they can catty corner, kitty corner. Yeah. And so they kind of stare in the dark. It's very um, intense because I thought in my brain, because the way it was set up that that's when uh, Larry was going to say, why are you looking at me like you know me? Yeah, I was expecting that too. Like I was waiting for that line from the trailer. And it's such a creepy line in the way he says it. And so I was anticipating. I don't think I breathed that whole last bit because I was anticipating it. Yeah. And again, like the music really yeah. ties that moment over too. It's just like just this kind of underlying tone. Yeah. Re- yeah. Really. But, and then it just went to black. And that's the end of that's the episode. The yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So good. This show is is so good already. Yeah. Just the first little bit that we've seen. Um, yeah. I think the pacing is really good. Mm-hmm. I think the back and forth between Larry and the Larry and Jimmy story and, you know, the, the Brian Miller investigation and mm-hmm. then the, you know, Lauren McCauley side of things. And then it finally all connects yeah. towards the end of this episode. Kind of like three stories in one. Yeah. Larry's, Jimmy's, and then the detective side yeah so I, I liked how they told all three and then they all merged together yeah yeah the the, the fact that these stories are so woven together and it kind mm-hmm. of seemed like the stories kind of seemed separate but they like you knew that they were going to come together eventually and mm-hmm. and the, the end of episode two is kind of when it all starts to come together for everything and so now I think ep- episode three is really going to take off I think three is going to be a tough tough episode i think it's gonna be super intense and i'm so i'm glad there's only one episode next week yeah i think we're gonna have a lot to talk about because yeah ep- episode three first of all from interviews from taryn and from what i've heard from other mm-hmm. actors and stuff episode three is 
big and especially yeah. the ending of the episode is going to mm-hmm. be something to look you're out like for waiting for episode four yeah it's so. gonna leave you hanging and leave you wanting more it's probably good that we don't have two back to back because even between episode one and episode two i took a break i watched episode one on thursday and episode two on friday because i'm a baby and can't watch stuff like that late at night <laughs> so i have to uh decompress my brain right and and so much happens you know these mm-hmm. the beginning of a show like this they have to give you tons of information all yes. at once so it's a lot to take in um yes so first of all this and- episode is going to be ver- a very long episode so sorry about that thank you for uh sticking with <laughs> us in. if you've listened for the whole thing but yeah so is there anything else you wanted to say about like just the show in general i mean i'm i'm excited i i hope for the cast and crew um for all of their work on it, they get recognition. Yes, for it, and they already are getting you know rave reviews. Good Morning America posted an amazing article about them. Um, I think it's got a ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's like doing really well. Yeah, people are liking it. Yeah, so I hope because you can tell they just put their blood, sweat, and tears in it that they get some sort of recognition for it. For sure, whether that's Emmy nominations, Golden Globes, eventually. Apple TV doesn't promote very well or much. Yeah, that is. And I think that's just what they do because a lot of their shows, you don't see a whole lot of promotion for it unless you're watching Apple TV and then you exactly. see Exactly. Yeah, but- like through through searching through like YouTube and stuff for mm-hmm. Blackbird things, I, I've seen like just other Apple TV. Mm-hmm. Like that's where they advertise if Apple yeah. TV is under other Apple TV shows. Yeah. So I don't think they, they mainstream their promotion, which that's just something that I guess that they do. But although like Hulu doesn't advertise on other things, you just see their ads on Hulu. But um, I guess because Apple TV is such a small streaming network compared to Hulu and Netflix. It's relatively new. And you really – if you don't have Apple, like an iPhone or an iPad or any type of Apple product, you probably don't realize that you can watch Apple TV without. Yeah, it's um, its own thing. You don't it's need whole... an Apple product to watch Apple TV. You can. Yeah, you don't need an Apple TV to watch Apple TV Plus. No. It's just a streaming service that you can buy just like any other one. Yeah, I can talk for hours about how yeah. uh, <laughs> Apple TV Plus is a really good streaming service, but. They don't do themselves any favors as far as advertising goes. There is a seven-day free trial. Yeah. And it's only $4.99 a month. Or if you buy a new iPhone, an Apple Watch, an iPad, any Apple product, um, you get three months free. Yeah. Anyway. sometimes they run specials and you get six months free because that's what happened. (laughs) Um, Now that our Apple TV Plus ad is over. um (laughs) Apple TV can pay me. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Apple TV Plus. No, it's not. We, we're doing their jobs for them by uh, yes. talking about this show. <laughs> we're doing their promotion. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. But long story short, I hope that they get the recognition without all of the heavy promotion. For sure. I think having um, bigger names like Greg Kinnear and Ray Liotta will help yeah, get literal, the word out. Literal movie stars in this show. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Taryn is a recognizable name. Yeah. Because he's been in a blockbuster movie. Paul Walter Hauser's a recognizable name. Yeah. So I think that'll help them a little bit. Definitely. And then once you 
watch the first episode, you'll be like, oh, this is great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, I, once you see the show, it kind of starts to sell itself because you mm-hmm. want to know what, yeah. what happens. And I think that the end of episode two is a really good sort of like not a cliffhanger necessarily, mm-hmm. but really like stuff is about it's to happen. They're, yeah. they're meeting up. Like it grips you. This, this story is about to explode. So really good show so far. I'm excited for episode three. And they didn't show like a preview clip, right? No. 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 The only thing is there's a couple of images, like a couple of mm-hmm. promotional stills that they have up and then they have a, an episode description of mm-hmm. episode three up. Yeah. Definitely tune in to our show next week when we talk about yes. episode three. This is going to be probably one of our biggest episodes of the mm-hmm. podcast. Um, yeah. Not giving anything away, but you are not going to want to miss it. It's going to be amazing. Yes. Um, this yes. is the, like this is the one that I've been waiting for <laughs> since <laughs> the start of the episode or the start of the podcast. Yes. Episode three is going to be called Hand to Mouth. And we will talk about that next week. Yep. I'm excited. Or use another word than excited. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I'm waited, waiting with bated breath. Yes. Anticipating. Yes. The arrival of the next episode. The next episode we'll. I'm stoked. Stoked. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's run through all of our verbiage yeah. now so that we know <laughs> what to say besides excited. Yes. Uh, my sister said if, if for some reason we end up selling merch of our show, <laughs> it just has to say excited. Excited. <laughs> excited but yeah i think that's gonna be it for us this week yeah. let us know what you thought of um not only our episode but our interview with Hillel too yeah and look forward to the full interview yes that's coming soon and let us know what we missed is there anything that we mm. should have talked about is there anything that you want us to talk about in our next episode episode three is there anything you're looking forward to what are your theories we want to hear about all of it so you can reach us on social media we are on Instagram at Devil Details Pod, also on Twitter at Devil Details Pod. You can message us, comment, tweet, all that stuff. And thank you to everybody who shared the posts and information about the podcast uh, last week. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for all your kind words that you left on the posts. Definitely. We're, we're super glad to hear from everyone. Yes. So we'll talk to you guys next week. Oh, no. Oh, we ran out of time. Wait, ran out of time for what? Aaron. He was supposed to come on the show today. Oh, oh my gosh. I completely forgot. Taryn Edgerton was supposed to be on this episode. He called yesterday and was confirmed, and then we just ran out of time. So, Taryn, if you're listening, I'm sorry. We ran out of time. This keeps happening. Oh, my gosh. So sorry. Sorry to Taryn. We'll probably have time next week, maybe. Um, We'll try to remember. Oh, my gosh. How embarrassing. So sorry, guys. So unprofessional. (laughs) Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. (laughs) See ya. Bye.